0: five verses, Um, pretty truncated sort of passage, and if you're reading the the gospel of Mark, imagine you started from verse one, you're only like eight verses behind when you get to where we are, like we're just at the start of this thing, and somehow we're already at the public ministry of Jesus, like somehow we've already gotten to the temptation of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, and that's because Mark is fast, Mark doesn't slow down. This is Mark's style. It's a style of economy, right? Mark is all about no flourish, no extras, just the essentials. This is the way Mark works. And I, I was thinking about it this week, you know, last Sunday we had the Super Bowl. And year after year, I'm more and more aware of how much the Super Bowl is is really more about entertainment than it is about football. Like once we get deep enough into the playoffs, it becomes more and more about entertainment, right? And it's not just the halftime show. Even the singing of the national anthem is a form of entertainment. Like The person who's given this responsibility knows they're not just singing the national anthem, they have to impress us, right? And so everybody who ever does it, they add their own flair, their own flavor, like they add a little bit of a flourish to what they're doing, right? Sometimes we like it, other times we think they added just a little too much flourish, Right? And it becomes this online dialogue, right? Everybody's talking about whether they didn't or, or they did like it. The same thing happens, though, right? Everywhere. Thanks to the Super Bowl, the same thing happens at your like, local high school football game. Some local yokel is, is given the task of singing the national anthem, and, and they think they're Whitney Houston, right? Right? And so they've got to add their flavor. They've got to add their flourish, right? And we all sit there uncomfortably while we endure this, right? The, mm, 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 as they're doing their thing, and, and we're just thinking, like, leave some of that for the car, right? Leave the flourish in the car, right? Leave the flourish when you're singing in the shower. That's good. You can flourish at home. Just don't bring so much flourish onto the field of play where you're singing the national anthem, right? It's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable, right? And Mark, Mark knows he's not Whitney Houston. He's not trying to be. Mark has no flourish, right? When Mark does the song, he's going to sing it straight. It's going to be upbeat, high tempo. It's going to be quick, right? It's like Mark's gospel is punk rock gospel, right? This is how Mark functions. But here's the thing, though. That means everything Mark tells you, it's on purpose. It's intentional. Everything Mark gives you He's not trying to waste his words. So if he's telling you, it must matter. It must be of some significance, right? And you probably noticed there are some things in this passage that are kind of unsettling. Maybe you wanted, you know, some like more details. Explain, Mark. How about a small excursus, a little explanation, right? No, he will not slow down to give you the details, right? And so if you were like a lot of people in the early church, And you are reading the gospel of Mark, right? This likely would have been the very first gospel. That's pretty well accepted. Among even academics and non-believing people, Mark is thought to be the earliest of the gospels. So likely, this might have been the first time anybody was hearing the story of Jesus, this concise, all put together. And one of the first things Mark tells you when you're meeting Jesus for the first time, is that Jesus, he says in verse 1, is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He begins there, and if you read all the way to the end of Mark, you'll find he comes back there. He wants you to see Jesus on the cross, and he has this Roman centurion speaking those words. Surely this man was the Son of God, right? He wants you to see that, right? He's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. But eight verses after he tells us that, just eight verses, he gives us a different sort of picture, right? Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and you find him standing in line with all of the other pilgrims waiting to be baptized by Crazy Jay out in the wilderness. And you're just like, Mark, help me understand what you're doing here. Like, is is this how we're going to convince people how significant Jesus' life is? Why, Mark? Why would you give us John the baptizer? Why is is Jesus going to be baptized, right? Remember, John's baptism is a, a baptism of repentance. So people were beginning to ask the question, if he's the son of God, then what's he repenting from? Why would he need to be baptized by him? Come on, Mark, explain it. Nothing. He keeps going. Then in the next, just, I mean, two verses, guys. He gives us two verses. And in two verses, Mark will lay out what is likely the most mysterious, the most profound and complicated tenet of our faith. The Trinity. He'll lay it all right here in in just two verses. Father, Son, and Spirit, all present, all functioning in completely different roles, and yet He remains one God. This is not a familiar concept in the Old Testament, the notion of Trinity. Yes, you see God. Yes, you see the Spirit. You don't necessarily see The son in this way. You see Israel called God's son. You see David called God's son. The king very often called God's son. But this is different. Explain it a little bit for us, Mark. How these three persons can remain one God. Give us a little bit more, Mark. No, he keeps going. Then he tells us that the spirit of God, which came upon Jesus in this moment of baptism, this beautiful sort of moment, right? That same spirit Now leads him out into the desert, into peril, into the grasp of the enemy himself, right? Come on, Mark. That's a lot, man. Give me something. Explain it. Help me make sense of why all this could happen, right? It's a little unsettling, right? Maybe a little bit of flourish could work here, right? Give me a little bit of detail. But give Mark some credit, right? Give him the benefit of the doubt, Because if you you drill down a bit, you begin to see that each of these little details, they're not wasted. They're all on purpose. There's something here, right? When he shows us Jesus the Messiah coming, right? When he introduces Jesus, he wants us to see that when Jesus makes himself known, introduces himself to the crowds, to everybody, Jesus doesn't feel the need to, to announce himself, to glorify or to exalt himself, to take upon himself some grand title, right? Instead. He comes and he lets someone else baptize him. Because Mark wants you to see Jesus that way. Mark needs you to see that humility is the path to exaltation for Jesus. Jesus will take no other path to glory than through humility. This is the way he works. And when the the Spirit fills him, right... And instead of leading him into some, you know, ecstatic, warm and fuzzy experience, he leads him out into the wilderness. But Mark wants you to see the struggle of the wilderness. It's the path to exaltation, right? This is the means by which Jesus is going to get where he's going. It all begins here in the wilderness. And that's the invitation in Lent, right? Right? This passage is read during Lent for this reason, because we are invited to enter into that same space with Jesus, to step into the humility, to step into the the self-denial, to step into the self-giving of Jesus, to step into the, the struggle of the wilderness with him, to experience that, knowing that there's more in the wilderness than just a struggle. We step into the wilderness with the expectation that in the wilderness is God's power and his presence lifting us up right it's in the losing of my pride it's in the losing of myself the losing of of this need for comfort and ease all the time forever that is mysteriously where i will find joy and peace but I'm told I can find it elsewhere. Lent tells me otherwise, the wilderness tells me otherwise. There is joy and fulfillment and satisfaction out in the wilderness in the place you least expect to find it and you must go there. It's this invitation to be there. Mark begins to unpack all this immediately. Verse nine, he tells us that Jesus came from Nazareth, right? So the first thing he needs you to see, like we've already said this, but hear it again and again and again. Mark needs you to see Jesus as humble. Eventually he's going to talk about Jesus as as being sacrificial and self-giving. Then he'll, he'll point you toward the struggle of Jesus, how central struggle is to the way Jesus lives his life, right? But he begins with humility. Jesus came from Nazareth. Now here's the thing. That would be received two different ways in the time that Jesus was living. Somebody might say, wait a second, remind me where Nazareth is. Like, I'm, I'm not familiar. Nazareth is a place that's not written about very often. We just know it's in Galilee. It's a very small and insignificant place. It's not impressive at all, okay? The other response would be kind of like Nathaniel. I don't know if you guys remember in the Gospel of John, Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, hey, you need to, you need to meet Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and Nathanael says, (laughs) can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, that's the other reaction. Oh, Nazareth. (laughs) Okay, maybe the next time you're telling the story, Mark, don't include that detail, because we're trying to impress people with Jesus, right? If you want to know how unappealing it is, if you want to understand just how other side of the, the railroad tracks Nazareth is, look at the way Matthew and Luke talk about it. When Matthew and Luke tell you about Jesus being from Nazareth... They always feel this need to explain it. They want you to know um, Jesus' family wasn't actually from Nazareth. It was Bethlehem they were really from, remember? And that's important for us. We need to know that, right? Because that's about prophecy. That's about what Micah says. That's all really helpful, right? Good details. Mark could have given us some good details, but Mark says no. Because Mark wants you to see Jesus exactly as he is. The Jesus who came from Nazareth, that humble backwater town in Galilee. He's okay with you seeing that because he wants you to know how central humility is to the character of Jesus. Then he goes on, right? He explains the one he has titled in verse 1 of his gospel, Jesus the Messiah and the Son of God, right? He's now waiting in line, presumably, with all these other people who've been coming out to the Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist. John is not exactly well received at the time. He's a very polarizing figure, right? People either love him or they hate him, right? They're either drawn toward him or they are repulsed by this guy, right? It's not the sort of figure you'd want to like, you know, hitch your wagon to when you're trying to to gain a whole lot of uh, following. And if Jesus is actually who Mark says he is, right, if he's really the son of God, if he's really the Messiah, then we kind of expect this scenario to play out a little bit differently, right? Okay, Jesus comes to John. He's baptizing all these people. And in this moment, Jesus announces who he is, that really John has been preaching about him all along. He politely shoes John out of the way and begins to baptize the people in his place, right? Thanks for holding my place, John. Now move along. And he doesn't. Jesus will eventually baptize people, but for now, he knows he has to wait. Jesus chooses to humble himself, and what the story shows us is this incredible picture of God's grace when someone chooses to humble themselves, right? Jesus chooses, though he shouldn't have to, to be baptized to take this humble role in the story, and as he's baptized, something incredible happens. The heavens open up and God begins to speak directly to Jesus. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Like the sense you get is like, Jesus didn't need to announce himself. Jesus didn't need to take some title upon himself because the father was going to announce him. God was going to make known who he was. And so Jesus didn't feel the need to flatter himself himself to seek the approval of man, he recognized that God was going to give him that. He didn't need the approval of man. He didn't need all of these credentials that everybody recognized. He just did not have. God is the one who will exalt Jesus, and Jesus is okay with that. Jesus finds this deep freedom in humility, right? And Mark needs you to see that the life of a disciple, whether you realize it yet or not, when you chose to follow Jesus, you chose humility, and I don't know that we, we've all come to grips with that all the time. But this is the way, right? As we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. And we can experience that. We can not experience that joy, that satisfaction, until we learn humility. Lent is where we carve out these 40 days. And for 40 days, we embrace that truth. That in humility, God will lift us up. We choose to be humbled so that we can experience the joy of God in a way that we will never be able to until we're finally able to to humble ourselves. Then there's this this moment. He moves forward, right? So it's humility he's going to emphasize. And the next thing he kind of steps into is sacrifice, self-giving. And he does it all in, in two verses, He just casually mentions the earth-shattering notion that God is triune. He is three and and he is one. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Guys, we're we're on the first page of Mark. We're still on the first page. And he's already taking me there. Have you guys figured out how to explain the Trinity well? You go, yeah, well, you can do it like this, and then there's the, the clover thing, right, and then there's the, yeah, g- great, but do you feel really confident about it? It's not an easy thing. This is not like an elevator pitch sort of thing. You can't do that with the Trinity. It doesn't work that way. Mark can, though, apparently, two verses. He brings us to one of the deepest theological truths in Scripture, but Mark, he's not John. He's not hyper-theological in the way he thinks or talks. He doesn't want to have some heady conversation with you over coffee. No, that's not Mark. He wants you to see three distinct persons, characters in this story, how they interact and work alongside one another in unity and harmony. He wants you to see the Trinity. A lot of people, a lot of times, will say that the Trinity is this late development in the history of the church. It's a much later thing, right? Trinity is not even a, a Greek word. It's not even found in the Bible, and all of that is true. But somehow, in the earliest gospel, here it is. Nine verses in. And Mark's laying it out for you. The Father, Son, and the Spirit all present doing this. Jesus, we see it immediately. He comes, the Son of God, Mark tells us. Comes and he he humbles himself. He's willing to be baptized by a man who is, by his own admission, not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus, right? That's John. But Jesus humbles himself anyway because he's making clear that he is committed and submitted to the will of the Father and not his own. He's making it very clear. He's coming to do something that his Father demands of him and, and not that he might have chosen for himself, Jesus is submitted gladly to the will of his Father. He serves the Father. He honors the Father. He glorifies the Father. But then the the script kind of gets flipped, right? The Father speaks, seemingly the one who must be important in all of this, at the height of the Trinity. A sort of hierarchy must put the Father at the, the top, but instead what we see when the Father speaks is God doesn't announce himself. He doesn't celebrate himself Maybe he doesn't think he needs to. Maybe people will just get it when heaven opens up and they hear the thundering voice, right? Maybe, maybe that's it. But the father doesn't announce himself. He announces Jesus. You are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. The father exalts him, right? Glorifies the son. Even as Jesus is glorifying his father, you see the, the father is, is glorifying the son now. And then you go a little bit further. Again, just in two verses, this is all happening. The Spirit comes upon Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He yields complete control to the Spirit, even if that means the Spirit might take him to a place none of the rest of us would choose to go on our own. He yields himself completely to the Spirit. He trusts, he submits to the Spirit. All in two verses, right? What you're seeing in this story is what we believe has existed at the heart of God throughout all of eternity. Like, this is the nature of God. He is one God, and yet He is three distinct persons, all in in perfect unity. This is what we say. Each one, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly submitted to the other. Each one celebrating the other. Each one glorifying the other throughout all of eternity. This is the way it's been, right? You've probably heard us articulate this. When we talk about... um, about marriage, like a a marital relationship, is a picture of that unity that has always existed at the heart of God. When we talk about the notion of the unity of the church, we're saying it's just a reflection of the unity at the heart of God. God has always been one, and we are being made one by His Spirit, right? It's always been this. This is the nature of God. What holds God together, what binds God together, the glue of the Trinity, is self-giving, sacrificial love, mutual submission to one another in love. That's what it is. And that means when God created the world, He didn't experience love first when He saw how good creation was. It wasn't humanity that made God love first. God has always loved. So when he creates us, he's inviting us into that love. He's choosing to share that. This is the the nature of God, right? Three in one, all glorifying glorifying the other, all loving the other, all of this creates this perfect joy and satisfaction at the heart of God. God needs nothing, he needs no more love. He doesn't need you to feel loved. He's always been this. He's sharing it with you instead. That's what's happening. He's inviting us into this eternal joy and delight that has always been in his heart. So think about this. This changes the way we very often see the scripture. Because I don't know about you, but for a lot of my life, I heard all of this talk about God's glory. God demanding glory. And I began to, to imagine, God must be kind of like self-obsessed. God seems to be very concerned about his own image. This is the way we, we've often seen it, right? But, but the way this plays out, when Jesus glorifies his Father, and God calls him to glorify him, and when God calls us as his people to glorify him, if we see this right, the way Mark is explaining it, it's not because God is self-obsessed. It's because God wants you to know the joy, the satisfaction of that love, of self-giving love. When God demands glory, when he asks us to glorify him, he's asking us to do the same thing he's been doing throughout all of eternity. Even as the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father, right? He's inviting us into that pattern. This is the only way you can experience that kind of joy, that kind of love. It can only happen as you let go of yourself. Self-giving is the only path, right? As I learn to sacrifice, as I I learn to humbly love something beyond me and what I want and what I think is best, right? And Lent, it's 40 days I'm called to spend learning this with the community of God, with the people of God. Trusting that self-giving is the only way to the eternal joy and delight that God has always known, that he's inviting me into over and over again. Two verses, and he can pull all that off. After dropping all of this on us, right, humility, self-giving, sacrifice, all of this, Mark ends this little passage with a real gem And I I hope this stood out to you. I hope it kind of bothered you a little bit. And at once, he says, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. Immediately, it communicates. He sent out into the wilderness. That may seem funny to you. It should, because later Jesus will teach his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, But that's exactly what's unfolding here. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan. The Spirit is leading Jesus into this vulnerable place where Jesus is exposed, right? Where Jesus is isolated, alone with the enemy. So like, what are we supposed to do with that? And, and the Greek word here, by the way, it doesn't mean what it sounds like a lot of times. There are so many people who've tried to translate this well, and it's hard to translate it in a way that, that really communicates the, the force of what's being said here. He didn't, like, lead Jesus out into the wilderness. He didn't guide him or, or direct him gently. Like, the word has more force. It's more violent. Like, when Jesus, for example, drives an unclean spirit out of someone... Very often the word in Greek used is ekbalo, right? That's the word being used here. Jesus was driven out into the wilderness. Mark needs you to hear it that way. Sometimes the Spirit will gently invite us out into the wilderness, and other times He may violently force us out into the wilderness. But one way or another, you can spend your life avoiding the wilderness, but you will end up there at some point whether you choose it and you come at his invitation or whether you are forced into it. The wilderness is something you're called to. You cannot avoid it your whole life. And Mark takes it a step further than than the other gospels. Like when Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus going out into the wilderness, they include a lot of things that Mark doesn't, but here's the one thing Mark includes that they don't. He tells us that Jesus was out in the wilderness and he he was with the wild animals, we were talking about this on, on Thursday morning. Mark's the only one who says that. Why does he say that? Um, and we're not talking about domesticated animals. It's very clear. Like Jesus is not like out shepherding the sheep in the wilderness. No. The wild animals, the beasts, the ones that make you uncomfortable, the ones that hunt you. It's trying to communicate. Jesus' life was truly at risk in this moment. Jesus is really vulnerable. He's been put in harm's way. And at first glance, all of this suggests this is not a good situation. This is bad. Why would would the Spirit lead Jesus into a harmful situation? Why would God want this for Jesus? Why would God want this for me? Help us out, Mark. Like, like, what do you have to say for yourself? Remember, like every little thing Mark tells you, it's on purpose. He's kind of fond of the word wilderness. He uses it a lot. And if, if you read the first chapter, you'll see it come up over and over again. If you read a little bit further from where we are now. You can look at it, it's in verse 35. He tells us that, that Jesus has this moment with his disciples. He's, he's gathered these disciples. They're beginning this ministry that's going to become so huge. But there's this moment where Jesus, we don't know, maybe he gets exhausted with his disciples, and he's just kind of like, I think I'm, I'm going to get out of here. I think I'm, I'm going to go you know, get some time alone. I'm going to go talk to somebody with some sense, right? Jesus is getting away. We see Jesus do this a lot in the Gospels. He's going to, to go and pray. But when he goes to pray, Mark tells us, right after he's told us this story, about being in the wilderness, being tempted, struggling. He tells us Jesus went out into the wilderness, and the word he uses is the same. Jesus went out into the Eremos. He went out into this solitary place, some translations will say, a lonely place, a quiet place. Jesus went out to the desert, is what it says. That's what Mark wants you to hear. Jesus went out into the wilderness, to the middle of nowhere, Jesus embraced the wilderness. He didn't just go there once, and it wasn't just the Spirit that forced him, thrust him out into the wilderness. He gladly goes again and again. You read further. Verse 45, it tells us, very often, Jesus didn't have anywhere to stay. Places he was at were kind of crowded, and so where did he decide to stay? Out in the Eremos, out in the wilderness. Mark just keeps laying it on us over and over again. He wants you to see Jesus embraced the wilderness. He embraced the struggle. He embraced the humility. He embraced the self-giving of this experience, right? Knowing that it was not going to be comfortable or easy, right? He recognized. We should expect that. The wilderness will not be comfortable or easy, but we should also expect that the, the wilderness is this place of God's power, of his presence, but it's easy for us to miss that the way Mark tells the story, right? I say temptation of Jesus. I say wilderness. And you think Jesus is out there for 40 days and Satan comes to him and just makes him utterly and completely miserable, right? This is what we, remember, Jesus is being assaulted by Satan and God just lets it happen. Jesus is in danger from wild animals. And we forget The way Mark tells the story, God bookends it. God begins and ends the story. It's the spirit that leads him there. He doesn't get lost. He doesn't wander aimlessly into the wilderness. No, God intends for him to go there because God has something for him there, right? And then Mark mentions, yes, and while he was there, Satan came. And while he was there, he was with the wild animals. But Mark finishes, just as God was the one who led him there, God was the one who provided for him there. It says angels cared for him. Angels ministered to him while he's there. The wilderness begins and ends with God. And yes, there are difficult things in between. But it begins and ends with God. God is the one who's at work. It's not a mistake. The struggle, the pain, the difficulty of it. The wilderness is better than you might have expected. The story shows us, invites us into it. And Mark wants you to get it. That's how Jesus' ministry began, right? It began in that kind of place, in humility, in self-giving love, in struggle, out in the wilderness. He wants us to see from the very start, like, these are the principles of the kingdom. This is what the life of a disciple looks like. Life doesn't just get better and easier. It's not all triumph. Mark wants you to see, this is what it looks like. So he begins the story of Jesus there. And if you read to the end, he ultimately ends the story of Jesus there. As he gets close to the end of the gospel, Mark brings us back to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Once again, humbly submitted to the will of the Father. Taking up a cross in an act of self-giving, of self-sacrifice, of love struggling against the enemy outside the city of Jerusalem in a wilderness that we spend most of our lives trying to avoid. but Mark wants to bring you back there again. We spend so much of our lives avoiding wilderness, trying to find comfort, trying to find better, trying to find enough, trying to find more. And yet, The Father invites you into the wilderness, calls you. Jesus waits for you there, invites you alongside him. The Spirit will eventually thrust you there if you are unwilling. But God is calling us into the wilderness, inviting us to this sort of place. We we spend our lives obsessing over things that will not matter in six months, in two years, in ten years. We think they will. We imagine they will. They will matter. This will be important. This matters, right? And somehow, despite all of our planning, all of our obsessing, we are the most anxious, the most troubled, the most depressed, the most doubting generation it seems like the world has ever seen, We're constantly wrestling with these things, and it's because we so often lose sight of the whole story. We lose sight of the grander scale of the kingdom of God. There's something bigger God is doing in this world than what's happening in your life right now. We lose sight of that, though. Like, we get lost. But the wilderness invites us to see the whole thing, right? The wilderness Helps us to recognize the kingdom of God swallows up all these lesser things. They just don't matter, right? You hear Jesus saying, seek first the kingdom. And all of these lesser things, they'll deal with themselves. It'll all be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. Don't obsess over smaller things. But, like, I get it. Maybe, maybe Lent is new to you. Or maybe it's not new to you, and you've been hearing Jonathan and I just, like, wail on this point for years. And you're just kind of like, I hear you, fasting, wilderness, abstaining, whatever else. Like, you hear that and you think, either that sounds terrible, it's not for me, or I've tried it, again, not for me, leave me out of this. But but here's what, what Mark is showing us. Here's what Jesus is is demonstrating for us that we miss. The wilderness is where we overcome the enemy. It's the thing we're longing for, it's the desire of our hearts. There are all these things we're wrestling with that we struggle with, and we don't realize it's the wilderness where all of this, this happens, right? It's the cross where we learn self-giving, sacrificial love. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to take it up. He's not cruel. He's saying this is the only way you can learn the nature of God. This is the only way you can experience what's been going on between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout all of eternity. If you take up that cross, if you enter into that wilderness. But if you aren't willing to go there, you miss all of the triumph, all of the hope of what Jesus is doing. If you never take up a cross to follow Jesus, you never get to experience the joy, the satisfaction, the peace that he's always known, that he's inviting you into, that radiates from his heart, right? Because the cross is the very substance of God. That's the reality of it. And if you never go without anything, if you never willingly choose to go without a fast to abstain, right, then you never fully realize that you've never lacked anything and you don't need more. You continue to live your life in this delusion that if you had more, if you had better, if you had other than what you have, you would be satisfied. And the wilderness will teach you otherwise. You've never lacked. God has always provided and he's always been present, even in these really painful places, right? You don't have to stay trapped in the delusion. Lent invites us out of it, right? And as the, the band comes and we move toward the table, like there's this reminder that out in the wilderness, God sets a table for us. He set a table for his people. When they were in need, he gave them bread from heaven. He gave them manna. He invited them to his table. to a different kind of experience. And that's what you're invited to come and taste of the bread of heaven and find it's the only thing that can satisfy you come and drink of this cup and find that it's only the new wine of the kingdom that can quench your thirst this is what you have to see and throughout lent we we come again and again we taste we drink and we remind ourselves of this there's nothing else that's going to satisfy you so we invite you in these moments Come and tear off a piece of bread. They're going to play a song. Take a cup. Move back toward your seats. Hold on to everything. And then as they finish, we'll all come back together and do this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wilderness. I thank you for this invitation. And sometimes the the polite shove you give us nudging us to experience that deep joy and satisfaction that has always been emanating from your heart. Enable us to experience that this morning. Enable us to see the joy that awaits us in the wilderness, in the midst of the struggle and the sacrifice and the humility. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name.